Section One of A Master of Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Master of Mysteries by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Introduction. It so happened that the circumstances of fate allowed me to follow my own bent in the choice of a profession. From my earliest youth the weird, the mysterious, had an irresistible fascination for me. Having private means, I resolved to follow my unique inclinations, and I am now well known to all my friends as a professional exposer of ghosts, and one who can clear away the mysteries of most haunted houses. Up to the present I have never had cause to regret my choice, but at the same time I cannot too strongly advise anyone who thinks of following my example to hesitate before engaging himself in tasks that entail time, expense, thankless labor, often ridicule, and not seldom great personal danger. To explain by the application of science phenomena attributed to spiritual agencies has been the work of my life. I have, naturally, gone through strange difficulties in accomplishing my mission. I propose in these pages to relate the histories of certain queer events, enveloped at first in mystery, and apparently dark with portent, but, nevertheless, when grappled with in the true spirit of science, capable of explanation. CHAPTER One, THE MYSTERY OF THE CIRCULAR CHAMBER One day in late September I received the following letter from my lawyer. My dear Bell, I shall esteem it a favor if you can make it convenient to call upon me at ten o'clock tomorrow morning on a matter of extreme privacy. At the appointed hour I was shown into Mr. Edgecombe's private room. I had known him for years. We were, in fact, old friends, and I was startled now by the look of worry, not to say anxiety, on his usually serene features. "'You are the very man I want, Bell,' he cried. "'Sit down. I have a great deal to say to you. There is a mystery of a very grave nature which I hope you may solve for me. It is in connection with a house said to be haunted.' He fixed his bright eyes on my face as he spoke. I sat perfectly silent, waiting for him to continue." "'In the first place,' he resumed, "'I must ask you to regard the matter as confidential.' "'Certainly,' I answered. "'You know,' he went on, "'that I have often laughed at your special hobby. But it occurred to me yesterday that the experience you have lived through may enable you to give me valuable assistance in this difficulty.' "'I will do my best for you, Edgecombe,' I replied. He lay back in his chair, folding his hands. "'The case is briefly as follows,' he began. It is connected with the family of the Wentworths. The only son, Archibald, the artist, has just died under most extraordinary circumstances. He was, as you probably know, one of the most promising watercolor painters of the younger school, and his pictures in this year's academy met with universal praise. He was the heir to the Wentworth estates, and his death has caused a complication of claims from a member of a collateral branch of the family who, when the present squire dies, is entitled to the money." This man has spent the greater part of his life in Australia, is badly off, and evidently belongs to a rowdy set. He has been to see me two or three times, and I must say frankly that I am not taken with his appearance. "'Had he anything to do with the death?' I interrupted. "'Nothing whatever, as you will quickly perceive. Wentworth has been accustomed from time to time to go alone on sketching tours to different parts of the country. He has tramped about on foot and visited odd out-of-the-way nooks searching for subjects.' He never took much money with him, and always travelled as an apparently poor man. 
A month ago he started off alone on one of these tours. He had a handsome commission from Barlow and Company, picture dealers in the Strand. He was to paint certain parts of the River Moran, and although he certainly did not need money, he seemed glad of an object for a good ramble. He parted with his family in the best of health and spirits, and wrote to them from time to time. But a week ago they heard the news that he had died suddenly at an inn on the Moran. There was, of course, an inquest and an autopsy. Dr. Miles Gordon, the Wentworth's consulting physician, was telegraphed for, and was present at the post-mortem examination. He is absolutely puzzled to account for the death. The medical examination showed Wentworth to be in apparently perfect health at the time. There was no lesion to be discovered upon which to base a different opinion, all the organs being healthy. Neither was there any trace of poison or marks of violence. The coroner's verdict was that Wentworth died of syncope, which, as you know, perhaps, is a synonym for an unknown cause. The inn where he died is a very lonely one, and has the reputation of being haunted. The landlord seems to bear a bad character, although nothing has ever been proved against him. But a young girl who lives at the inn gave evidence which at first startled everyone. She said, at the inquest, that she had earnestly warned Wentworth not to sleep in the haunted room. She had scarcely told the coroner so before she fell to the floor in an epileptic fit. When she came to herself she was sullen and silent, and nothing more could be extracted from her. The old man, the innkeeper, explained that the girl was half-witted, but he did not attempt to deny that the house had the reputation of being haunted, and said that he had himself begged Wentworth not to put up there. Well, that is about the whole of the story. The coroner's inquest seems to deny the evidence of foul play, but I have my very strong suspicions. What I want you to do is to ascertain if they are correct. Will you undertake the case? I will certainly do so, I replied. Please let me have any further particulars and a written document to show, in case of need, that I am acting under your directions. Edgecombe agreed to this, and I soon afterwards took my leave. The case had the features of an interesting problem, and I hoped that I should prove successful in solving it. That evening I made my plans carefully. I would go into Blankshire early on the following morning, assuming for my purpose the character of an amateur photographer. Having got all necessary particulars from Edgecombe, I made a careful mental map of my operations. First of all I would visit a little village of the name of Harkhurst, and put up at the inn the Crown and Thistle. Here Wentworth had spent a fortnight when he first started on his commission to make drawings of the River Moran. I thought it likely that I should obtain some information there. Circumstances must guide me as to my further steps, but my intention was to proceed from Harkhurst to the Castle Inn, which was situated about six miles further up the river. This was the inn where the tragedy had occurred. Towards evening on the following day I arrived at Harkhurst. When my carriage drew up at the Crown and Thistle, the landlady was standing in the doorway. She was a buxom-looking dame with a kindly face. I asked for a bed. "'Certainly, sir,' she answered. She turned with me into the little inn, and taking me upstairs showed me a small room, quite clean and comfortable, looking out on the yard. I said it would do capitally, and she hurried downstairs to prepare my supper. After this meal, which proved to be excellent, I determined to visit the landlord in the bar. I found him chatty and communicative. "'This is a lonely place,' he said. "'We don't often have a soul staying with us for a month at a time.' As he spoke, he walked to the door, and I followed him. The shades of night were beginning to fall, but the picturesqueness of the little hamlet could not but commend itself to me. "'And yet this is a lovely spot,' I said. 
I should have thought tourists would have thronged to it. It is at least an ideal place for photographers.' "'You're right there, sir,' replied the man. "'And although we don't have company to stay in the inn, now and then we have a stray artist. It's not three weeks back,' he continued, "'that we had a gentleman like you, sir, only a bit younger, to stay with us for a week or two. He was an artist, and drew from morning till night. Ah, poor fellow!' "'Why do you say that?' I asked. "'I have good cause, sir. Here, wife,' continued the landlord, looking over his shoulder at Mrs. Johnson, the landlady, who now appeared on the scene. "'This gentleman has been asking me questions about our visitor, Mr. Wentworth. But perhaps we ought not to inflict such a dismal story upon him to-night.' "'Pray do,' I said. "'What you have already hinted at arouses my curiosity. Why should you pity Mr. Wentworth?' "'He is dead, sir,' said the landlady, in a solemn voice. I gave a pretended start, and she continued. "'And it was all his own fault. Ah, dear!' It makes me almost cry to think of it. He was as nice a gentleman as I ever set eyes on, and so strong, hearty, and pleasant. Well, sir, everything went well until one day he said to me, I'm about to leave you, Mrs. Johnson. I'm going to a little place called the Castle Inn, further up the Moran. The Castle Inn? I cried. No, Mr. Wentworth, that you won't, not if you value your life. And why not? he said, looking at me with as merry blue eyes as ever you saw in anybody's head. "'Why should I not visit the Castle Inn? "'I have a commission to make some drawings "'of that special bend in the river.' "'Well, then, sir,' I answered, "'if that is the case, "'you'll just have a horse and trap from here "'and drive over as often as you want to, "'for the Castle Inn ain't a fit place "'for a Christian to put up at.' "'What do you mean?' he asked of me. "'It is said to be haunted, sir, "'and what does happen in that house the Lord only knows. "'But there's not been a visitor at the inn for some years, "'not since Bailiff Holt came by his death.' came by his death he asked and how was that god knows but i don't i answered at the coroner's inquest it was said that he died from syncope whatever that means but the folks round here said it was fright mr wentworth just laughed at me he didn't mind a word i said and next day sir he was off carrying his belongings with him well and what happened i asked seeing that she paused what happened sir just what i expected Two days afterwards came the news of his death. Poor young gentleman! He died in the very room where Holt had breathed his last, and, oh, if there wasn't a fuss and to-do, for it turned out that, although he seemed quite poor to us, with little or no money, he was no end of a swell, and had rich relations, and big estates coming to him, and, of course, there was a coroner's inquest and all the rest, and great doctors came down from London, and our doctor Stanmore, who lives down the street, was sent for, and though they did all they could and examined him as it were with a microscope, they could find no cause for death, and so they give it out that it was syncope, just as they did in the case of poor Holt. But, sir, it wasn't. It was fright, sheer fright. The place is haunted. It's a mysterious, dreadful house, and I only hope you won't have nothing to do with it. She added a few more words and presently left us. That's a strange story, I said, turning to Johnson. "'Your wife has excited my curiosity. "'I should much like to get further particulars.' "'There don't seem to be anything more to tell, sir,' replied Johnson. "'It's true, what the wife says, that the Castle Inn has a bad name. "'It's not the first, no, nor the second death that has occurred there.' "'You mentioned your village doctor. "'Do you think he could enlighten me on the subject?' "'I am sure he would do his best, sir. "'He lives only six doors away in a red house. "'Maybe you wouldn't mind stepping down the street and speaking to him?' "'You are sure he would not think it a liberty? 
"'Not he, sir. He'll only be too pleased to exchange a word with someone outside this sleepy little place.' "'Then I'll call on him,' I answered, and taking up my hat I strolled down the street. I was lucky in finding Dr. Stanmore at home, and the moment I saw his face I determined to take him into my confidence. "'The fact is this,' I said, when he had shaken hands with me, "'I should not dream of taking this liberty. Did I not feel certain that you could help me?' "'And in what way?' he asked, not stiffly, but with a keen, inquiring, interested glance. "'I have been sent down from London to inquire into the Wentworth mystery,' I said. "'Is that so?' he said with a start. Then he continued gravely. "'I fear you have come on a wild goose chase. There was nothing discovered at the autopsy to account for the death. There were no marks on the body, and all the organs were healthy. I met Wentworth often when he was staying here, and he was as hardy and strong-looking a young man as I have ever come across.' "'But the Castle Inn has a bad reputation,' I said. "'That is true. The people here are afraid of it. It is said to be haunted. But really, sir, you and I need not trouble ourselves about stupid reports of that sort. Old Bindloss, the landlord, has lived there for years, and there has never been anything proved against him.' "'Is he alone?' "'No. His wife and a grandchild live there also.' "'A grandchild?' I said. "'Did not this girl give some startling evidence at the inquest?' "'Nothing of consequence,' replied Dr. Stanmore. "'She only repeated what Bindloss had already said himself, "'that the house was haunted, "'and that she had asked Wentworth not to sleep in the room. "'Has anything ever been done to explain the reason "'why this room is said to be haunted?' I continued. "'Not that I know of. "'Rats are probably at the bottom of it. "'But have not there been other deaths in the house?' "'That is true.' "'How many?' "'Well, I have myself attended to no less than three similar inquests.' "'And what was the verdict of the jury?' "'In each case the verdict was death from syncope.' "'Which means cause unknown,' I said, jumping impatiently to my feet. "'I wonder, Dr. Stanmore, that you are satisfied to leave the matter in such a state.' "'And pray, what can I do?' he inquired. "'I am asked to examine a body. I find all the organs in perfect health. I cannot trace the least appearance of violence.' nor can I detect poison. What other evidence can I honestly give? I can only say that I should not be satisfied, I replied. I now wish to add that I have come down from London determined to solve this mystery. I shall put myself up at the Castle Inn. Well, said Dr. Stanmore, and sleep in the haunted room. Of course you don't believe in the ghost. No, but I believe in foul play. Now, Dr. Stanmore, will you help me? Most certainly, if I can. "'What do you wish me to do?' "'This. I shall go to the Castle Inn to-morrow. "'If at the end of three days I do not return here, "'will you go in search of me, "'and at the same time post this letter to Mr. Edgecombe, "'my London lawyer?' "'If you do not appear in three days, "'I'll kick up no end of a row,' said Dr. Stanmore. "'And, of course, post your letter.' "'Soon afterwards I shook hands with the doctor and left him.' After an early dinner on the following day, I parted with my good-natured landlord and his wife, and with my knapsack and kodak strapped over my shoulders, started on my way. I took care to tell no one that I was going to the Castle Inn, and for this purpose doubled back through a wood and so found the right road. The sun was nearly setting when at last I approached a broken-down signpost, on which, in half-obliterated characters, I could read the words, "'To the Castle Inn.' I found myself now at the entrance of a small lane, which was evidently little frequented, as it was considerably grass-grown. From where I stood I could catch no sight of any habitation, 
but just at that moment a low, somewhat inconsequent laugh fell upon my ears. I turned quickly and saw a pretty girl, with bright eyes and a childish face, gazing at me with interest. I had little doubt that she was old Bindloss's granddaughter. "'Will you kindly tell me,' I asked, "'if this is the way to the castle inn?' My remark evidently startled her. She made a bound forward, seized me by my hand, and tried to push me away from the entrance to the lane into the high road. "'Go away!' she cried. "'We have no beds fit for gentlemen at the castle inn. Go! Go!' she continued, and she pointed up the winding road. Her eyes were now blazing in her head, but I noticed that her lips trembled, and that very little would cause her to burst into tears. "'But I am tired and footsore,' I answered. "'I should like to be put up at the inn for the night.' "'Don't!' she repeated. "'They'll put you into a room with a ghost. "'Don't go. "'Tain't a place for gentlemen.' Here she burst not into tears, but into a fit of high, shrill, almost idiotic laughter. She suddenly clapped one of her hands to her forehead, and turning, flew almost as fast as the wind, down the narrow lane, and out of sight. I followed her quickly. I did not believe that the girl was quite as mad as she seemed, but I had little doubt that she had something extraordinary weighing on her mind. At the next turn I came in view of the inn. It was a queer-looking old place, and I stopped for a moment to look at it. The house was entirely built of stone. There were two stories to the center part, which was square, and at the four corners stood four round towers. The house was built right on the river, just below a large mill-pond. I walked up to the door and pounded on it with my stick. It was shut, and looked as inhospitable as the rest of the place. After a moment's delay it was opened two or three inches, and the surly face of an old woman peeped out. "'And what may you be wantin?' she asked. "'A bed for the night,' I replied. "'Can you accommodate me?' She glanced suspiciously, first at me, and then at my camera. "'You're an artist, I make no doubt,' she said. "'And we don't want no more of them here.' She was about to slam the door in my face, but I pushed my foot between it and the lintel. "'I am easily pleased,' I said. "'Can you not give me some sort of bed for the night?' "'You had best have nothing to do with us,' she answered. "'You go off to Harkhurst. They can put you up at the Crown and Thistle.' "'I have just come from there,' I answered. "'As a matter of fact, I could not walk another mile.' "'We don't want any visitors at the Castle Inn,' she continued. Here she peered forward and looked into my face. "'You had best be off,' she repeated. "'They say the place is haunted.' I uttered a laugh. "'You don't expect me to believe that,' I said. She glanced at me from head to foot. Her face was ominously grave. "'You had best know all, sir,' she said after a pause. "'Something happens in this house, and no living soul knows what it is, for they who have seen it have never yet survived to tell the tale. It's not more than a week back that a young gentleman came here. He was like you, bold as brass, and he too wanted a bed and would take no denial.' I told him plain, and so did my man, that the place was haunted. He didn't believe no more than you mind. Well, he slept in the only room we have got for guests, and he, he died there. What did he die of? I asked. Right, was the answer, brief and laconic. Now do you want to come or not? Yes, I don't believe in ghosts. I want the bed, and I am determined to have it. The woman flung the door wide open. "'Don't say as I ain't warned you,' she cried. "'Come in, if you must.' She led me into the kitchen, where a fire burned sullenly on the hearth. 
"'Sit you down, and I'll send for Bindloss,' she said. "'I can only promise to give you a bed if Bindloss agrees. "'Liz, come along here this minute.' A quick young step was heard in the passage, and the pretty girl whom I had seen at the top of the lane entered. Her eyes sought my face, her lips moved as if to say something, but no sound issued from them. "'Go and find your granddad,' said the old woman. "'Tell him there is a gentleman here that wants a bed. Ask him what's to be done.' The girl favored me with a long and peculiar glance, then turning on her heel she left the room. As soon as she did so, the old woman peered forward and looked curiously at me. "'I'm sorry you're staying. Don't forget as I warned you. Remember this ain't a proper inn at all. Once it was a mill, but that was a four loss day in mine. Gents would come in the summer and put up for the fishing, but then the story of the ghost got abroad, and lately we have no visitors to speak of, only an odd one now and then, who ain't wanted. No, he ain't wanted.' "'You see, there was three deaths here. Yes.' She held up one of her skinny hands and began to count on her fingers. "'Yes, three up to the present. Three, that's it. Ah, here comes Bindloss.' A shuffling step was heard in the passage, and an old man, bent with age, and wearing a long white beard, entered the room. "'We has no beds for strangers,' he said, speaking in an aggressive and loud tone. "'Hasn't the wife said so?' "'We don't let out beds here.' "'As that is the case, you have no right to have that signpost at the end of the lane,' I retorted. "'I am not in a mood to walk eight miles for a shelter in a country I know nothing about. Can you not put me up somehow?' "'I've told the man everything, Sam,' said the wife. "'He is just for all the world like young Mr. Wentworth, and not a bit frightened.' The old landlord came up and faced me. "'Look you here.' he said. You stay on at your peril. I don't want you, nor do the wife. Now is it yes or no? It is yes, I said. There's only one room you can sleep in. One room is sufficient. It's the one Mr. Wentworth died in. Hadn't you best take up your traps and be off? No, I shall stay. Then there's no more to be said. Run, Liz, said the woman, and light the fire in the parlor. The girl left the room, and the woman, taking up a candle, said she would take me to the chamber where I was to sleep. She led me down a long and narrow passage, and then, opening a door, down two steps, into the most extraordinary-looking room I had ever seen. The walls were completely circular, covered with a paper of a staring, grotesque pattern. A small iron bedstead projected into the middle of the room, which was uncarpeted except for a slip of matting beside it. A cheap deal wash-hand stand, a couple of chairs, and a small table with a blurred-looking glass stood against the wall beneath a deep embrasure in which there was a window. This was evidently a room in one of the circular towers. I had never seen less inviting quarters. "'Your supper will be ready directly, sir,' said the woman, and placing the candle on the little table, she left me. The place felt damp and draughty, and the flame of the candle flickered about, causing the tallow to gutter to one side. There was no fireplace in the room, and above the walls converged to a point, giving the whole place the appearance of an enormous extinguisher. I made a hurried and necessarily limited toilet, and went into the parlor. I was standing by the fire, which was burning badly, when the door opened, and the girl Liz came in, bearing a tray in her hand. She laid the tray on the table, and came up softly to me. "'Fools come to this house,' she said, "'and you are one.' "'Pray let me have my supper, and don't talk,' I replied. "'I am tired and hungry, and want to go to bed.' 
Liz stood perfectly still for a moment. "'Tain't worth it,' she said. Then, in a meditative voice, "'No, tain't worth it, but I'll say no more. Folks will never be warned.' Her grandmother's voice calling her caused her to bound from the room. My supper proved better than I had expected, and having finished it, I strolled into the kitchen, anxious to have a further talk with the old man. He was seated alone by the fire, a great mastiff lying at his feet. "'Can you tell me why the house is supposed to be haunted?' I asked suddenly, stooping down to speak to him. "'How should I know?' he cried hoarsely. "'The wife and me have been here twenty years, and have never seen nor heard anything. But for certain folks do die in the house. It's mortal unpleasant for me, for the doctors come along, and the coroner, and there's an inquest, and no end of fuss. The folks die, although no one has ever laid a finger on them. The doctors can't prove why they're dead, but dead they be.' "'Well, there ain't no use saying any more. "'You are here, and maybe you'll pass the one night all right.' "'I shall go to bed at once,' I said. "'But I should like some candles. Can you supply me?' The man turned and looked at his wife, who at that moment entered the kitchen. She went to the dresser, opened a wooden box, and taking out three or four tallow candles, put them into my hand. I rose, simulating a yawn. "'Good night, sir,' said the old man. "'Good night. I wish you well.' A moment later I had entered my bedroom, and having shut the door, proceeded to give it a careful examination. As far as I could make out, there was no entrance to the room except by the door, which was shaped to fit the circular walls. I noticed, however, that there was an unaccountable draft, and this I at last discovered came from below the oak wainscoting of the wall. I could not in any way account for the draft, but it existed to an unpleasant extent. The bed, I further saw, was somewhat peculiar. It had no casters on the four legs, which were let down about half an inch or so into sockets provided for them in the wooden floor. This discovery excited my suspicions still further. It was evident that the bed was intended to remain in a particular position. I saw that it directly faced the little window, sunk deep into the thick wall, so that any one in bed would look directly at the window. I examined my watch, found that it was past eleven, and placing both the candles on a tiny table near the bed, I lay down without undressing. I was on the alert to catch the slightest noise, but the hours dragged on and nothing occurred. In the house all was silence, and outside the splashing and churning of the water falling over the wheel came distinctly to my ears. I lay awake all night, but as morning dawned fell into an uneasy sleep. I awoke to see the broad daylight streaming in at the small window. Making a hasty toilet I went out for a walk, and presently came in to breakfast, it had been laid for me in the big kitchen, and the old man was seated by the hearth. "'Well,' said the woman, "'I hope you slept comfortable, sir.' I answered in the affirmative, and now perceived that old Bindloss and his wife were in the humour to be agreeable. They said that if I was satisfied with the room, I might spend another night at the inn. I told them that I had a great many photographs to take, and would be much obliged for the permission. As I spoke, I looked round for the girl, Liz. She was nowhere to be seen.' "'Where is your granddaughter?' I asked of the old woman. "'She has gone away for the day,' was the reply. "'It's too much for Liz to see strangers. She gets excited, and then the fits come on.' "'What sort of fits?' "'I can't tell what they're called, but they're bad, and weaken her, poor thing. Liz ought never to be excited.' Here Bindloss gave his wife a warning glance. She lowered her eyes, and going across to the range, began to stir the contents of something in a saucepan. End of Part 1 of Chapter 1